can we turn to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1, we'll look at verses 12 to 26. chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that field in the language, Akaldamah, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, Let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so that he was added to the eleven apostles. So far the reading of God's word. May he bless our time in it this morning as we relate these events to what it is we are about to do at Cottage Grove Church and with Reverend Gephardt. It is interesting that we're here to do something that, that doesn't seem very radical, doesn't seem very, very hip, uh, very innovative in modern culture, for that matter, in many modern churches, right? We're here to install a pastor using forms. We're going to use some set prayers. Uh, there's several oaths that will be made by, by Pastor Carey, several oaths and vows taken by you as a congregation. And I'm not sure how a really radical and innovative and and from-the-hip kind of world would view such an event. Churches these days have been giving in to that kind of mindset of always looking for that which is most innovative and and most hip. They want something that's that's more activistic maybe or or, or pragmatic, seemingly more more, uh, concrete than the ordinary run-of-the-mill things that happen in churches. I think of a church back in in California, uh, close to where I serve, and and reading that they decided that meeting for worship on Sunday, well, it was good, 
but it could be better. And so what they decided to do is on the, the fifth Sunday of the month, instead of meeting for worship, they would go out and do works of service. They would pick up trash or sweep sidewalks. And this was heralded as, as such a great thing, something new, something concrete. Not really asking whether that was what they were called to do as the church of God. Service is clearly a good thing, and yet we do need to always ask, what about the ordinary? What about those things that are, that are distinctively churchly? Is there a place for those? Well, we find here in Acts chapter 1 that there is indeed a place for that which is ordinary, that which is churchly, we might say. In fact, the church's mission in this era of redemptive history, in this epoch uh, where we live now, the church's mission is shaped by Acts 1 and 2. Acts chapter 2 tells the story of Pentecost. Many of you will know that, that story well of the, of the flames of fire, the tongues of fire resting on all the disciples, where once before, fire of God's presence rested on the temple and on the tabernacle. Now we see those living stones as the place where God's fiery presence rests. But there at that event, that mission to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth became empowered by the Holy Spirit's work. And yet before we come to the end of chapter 2 where there's this rich scene of, of the disciples all together devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers, this scene where there's togetherness in the early church of, of them all having things in common of, of mutual care, mutual upbuilding, a wonderful picture of the church as a family at the end of Acts 2. Before we get to that, in Acts chapter 1, we have the church taking care of some churchly business, taking care of some institutional responsibilities. So what we'll look at this morning as we consider Acts 1 is the church being readied for mission by the ordination and installation of leaders. We'll look at three things. First, the description of the church, as we find it in Acts 1 here, the description of the church. Second, we will see preaching in the church. And third and finally, we'll look at this point of ordination in the church. Well, we'll start with the description of the church that we get here in Acts chapter 1. Now, it's interesting today, there are a lot of different books about uh, the mission of the church and, and calling the church to embrace its missional identity. Uh, many of them are quite, quite good and, and excellent for us to think about what it is we're called to do and how God is advancing his kingdom using the church. But what's interesting is how often these books and many teachers, when they want to talk about the church's mission, go to Matthew 28. And, and almost freight that with most of the, the, the work for how the church goes about its, its mission. Acts, Matthew 28, rather, is famously called the Great Commission. And there are those commands. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What's interesting, though, is prior to, to the missiologist or missionary William Carey, the church didn't typically go to Matthew 28 when it was looking for its sort, of, its sort of constitution of its mission. They went somewhere else. Instead of going to the imperative, to the commands of Matthew 28, 
Historically, the church has gone to the indicatives of Acts 1 and 2. They've gone to those statements of what God was doing in history to fuel that mission of the church. Acts 1 and 2 fueled the church's missionary zeal, especially in 1 verse 8 where we read, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Church's mission is not merely an obedience to a command to make disciples, but the church's mission is lived out of a reality. A reality that we have received power at Pentecost in the Holy Spirit. And indeed, we are witnesses. See, Matthew 28 is an important text, but it's not the primary text. And the events after Matthew 28 seem to be those main motivators of the church's mission, chief of which is the ascension. Acts 1 verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, he's gone, he was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Ascension was a surprising event, and yet the Christian church is an ascensional church because the absent Christ, as it were, is the Christ who is reigning and is the Christ who is with us by His Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit who comes at Pentecost, that Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the not here, yet still reigning Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the new creation where Christ is all in all. And his reign is from sea to sea. And it is that spirit who is with us now. Who's with us today. This morning. And so though Christ has ascended, that ascension means his reign and his spirit with us. We live in this period that a lot of people refer to as already, but at the same time, not yet. See, already we are vitally connected to that living, reigning, ascended Christ. And yet, we are not yet experiencing the fullness of that new creation in all its glory. And yet that new creation draws us forward, draws us in hope, draws us in confidence and in expectation. Notice, though, in the story of Acts, what we've looked at so far is that between the ascension and between Pentecost, something happens. May have missed our attention because it's not maybe the most riveting of events, but some things happen in there. Christ prepares the church to receive the Spirit and to begin its mission. And look what the church does between the ascension and between Pentecost. Five things in particular I want you to notice. First of all, they gather together. Verse 14 says they come with one accord. That language of one accord isn't just simply that they're in close proximity, although they may have been in close proximity. We don't know what their worship space, their meeting space would have looked like. But they gather together chiefly in unity of mind and and unity of purpose, unity of heart that characterized the early church. They gather together physically, spiritually, Emotionally, mentally, doctrinally, they come together. Second thing we notice is that they gather together for prayer. 
Indeed, that togetherness is chiefly manifested by their corporate prayer. Verse 14 says, all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And then third, they number their membership. Well, that's funny. Isn't that pretty ordinary work? That sounds like clerical work. That doesn't sound all inspired like we expect from a book like Acts. What's going on here? But look, verse 13 lists the name of the, of the 11 remaining apostles. Verse 15 says that they numbered even more and found that there were about 120 people there. Verse 14 says that both men and women were present. They went ahead and numbered their members. Formal church membership is indeed a very biblical concept. They do a fourth thing between the Ascension and Pentecost, and that is they listen to preaching. And we're going to say a little more about that in our second point this morning about Peter's first sermon, but note that they sit down for a sermon. And then the fifth thing they do is they ordain a church officer. Again, we're going to say more about this in our third point, so I know I'm pushing a bunch of this down the road, but we'll get to it. But isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting? Pentecost wasn't first. Right? If anybody had asked me to to set up the events of Acts, I would probably put on quite the show. We'd have the ascension, boom. We'd have Pentecost, boom. And then we'd be off and running. But of course, nobody asked me. (laughs) And praise God, nobody asked me. Because God's way is far superior. First, the church gathered. They were organized The institutional church was put together. It was a very new church. It was one that would continue to firm up its organization throughout the book of Acts and even into the rest of the New Testament where we learn about such ordinary, seemingly mundane things as church office, the the roles of elders and deacons, the way the church builds itself up in love. But here there is a gathered, organized, institutional church. That is true. I don't know if many of you have, have noticed this, but sort of in, in uh, some of our uh, conservative, reformed, traditional circles, some people do make something of an idol out of churchly things. There can be those who, who like order, who like polity, and that's what gets them excited more than the Christ for whom all that polity is meant to serve, right? There is that, that temptation, And yet the answer is not to minimize the importance of these institutional features. We shouldn't minimize creeds. We we shouldn't downplay liturgy. We shouldn't neglect the means of grace. We shouldn't neglect office or discipline or neglect any kinds of broader ecclesiastical kinds of work. These are things that God has instituted for His glory and for the well-being and well-order of His church that the church might effectively serve in this mission. But we always need to remember that the institution needs to be used truly in service of God's mission. That brings us to our second point this morning, preaching in the church. Preaching. Now in Acts 1 verse 15, we have the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. In verses 16 to 22, Peter, Peter will preach a message from Scripture He'll cite Psalm 69, and he'll cite Psalm 109. And he will tailor those passages to very present cir- pressing rather, circumstances for this newly numbered church. Peter will do this, some uh, amazing things in Acts. 
And yet it's significant that the first thing he does after rising to prominence among the disciples is preach. Now, a few things are noteworthy about his preaching here. On the one hand, it's thoroughly scriptural. Thoroughly scriptural preaching. Verse 16, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Now, you need to remember the situation that the early church is facing. I, I mentioned that the 11 apostles were numbered. Remember why there's not 12? The 12th, Judas, had betrayed Jesus, and as the text told us, he took his own life. And you can imagine Peter simply going the pragmatic route here, saying, well, everybody, we need another guy to, to spread the work around. We need to have sort of an evenness in our numbers. This won't work. If, if we're walking in two lines, one of us won't have a partner, right? We need to come up with, a, with another apostle. And yet that's not what he does. Rather, Peter grounds these next steps in Scripture, He sees that knowing and understanding God's word is what is needed most for the pressing decisions and for the challenges, not only of of life in the church, but of life as a whole. Friends, here at Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church, Reverend Gephardt is tasked with preaching scripture. And I urge you to not grow weary with scripture I urge you to not grow weary with biblical exposition, with biblical teaching, with knowing details about God's Word, with puzzling over questions in God's Word, but rather study it, beloved. Read it. Meditate on it and hunger week in and week out to hear it preached. As a word to carry, brother, I urge you to base all your preaching on Scripture even when it feels like there are more pressing things, more practical things to say in the life of this church, remember that what is most beneficial to the people at Cottage Grove, Christian Reformed, and in the community of South Holland, what is most beneficial is for them to hear God's voice. Let them hear his word, brother. So first, his sermon is thoroughly scriptural. But second, notice how Peter addresses a current issue. Peter addresses a a pressing concern. You'd almost imagine if if Peter is going to suddenly be this new figure in the church, he could have laid out a very programmatic, uh, a programmatic message showing what he's envisioning and doing during his term as sort of a rising to prominence uh, among these people, right? Um, Could have been very sweeping and very comprehensive, and there's a place for this. And yet Peter, first and foremost, saw himself as a pastor of this small group of scared disciples. A small group that was reeling in the midst of the apostasy of one of their own, of Judas. Wondering what to do. And Peter didn't write off this issue as some kind of felt need. Rather, he addressed it. They were trying to figure things out, trying to figure out what to do next, so Peter addresses it. Verse 16, he recounts the situation of of Judas' rebellion and fate and how he had been numbered among them and how he had been even allotted a share. Literally, it says that Judas had received a lot in that ministry. Don't forget that word. He had received a lot in that ministry. And what Peter does is chart a biblical course forward, shepherding the flock where they are right now. And here too, encouragement to 
to carry, to not just preach generic sermons, even if they are biblical, but rather, brother, preach sermons that Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church needs to hear when Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church needs to hear them. And congregation, be ready to hear those very messages. Be ready to rethink the things going on around you in light of what's being proclaimed. Be ready to reimagine things as, as Scripture is reorienting you. So Peter addresses a pressing concern. But third, Peter preaches a redemptive historical sermon. I'm not trying to use technical homiletical language here, but Peter is preaching a sermon that recognizes the unity of God's plan throughout history, from creation to new creation. And Peter recognizes that the Old Testament is not just some ancient book about an ancient people, but rather it is the church's book that proclaims Jesus Christ in type and in shadow. It prepares for the reality that comes in Christ. Peter says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning this. The Old Testament ultimately anticipated these last days developments. That's quite a staggering thing for Peter to claim. Now, Peter cites two passages of Scripture I mentioned. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And yet, the way he cites these passages has puzzled many people. Because a lot of people go back and read these psalms and think, wait a minute, does it really say that? Is this psalm really about Judas? Did David know about Judas doing this? It's interesting to look at what these psalms say. Because in Psalm 69, we read of David's foes, but Psalm 69 speaks of a group of David's foes. And yet here Peter in Acts chapter 1 interprets Psalm 69 as of speaking of an individual. What's going on here? Or Psalm 109, David's words are in imprecation against his accuser. And yet Peter interprets it as a directive for dealing with the loss of a church officer. Now, some critical scholars will say, oh, Peter's just being fanciful. Peter's not under inspiration. In fact, this proves that Peter's not under inspiration because he's just doing a fanciful, self-serving interpretation of the books of Psalms. He wants to sound scriptural. But I suggest to you, Peter is not being fanciful at all. But rather, Peter sees something in the book of Psalms that we are all supposed to see. He saw that David was not just a king in his own right, a king of Israel for his own power, but rather David was a type of Christ the king. And the attacks that David faced were types of attacks that Christ himself would face to the utmost. So that in Psalm 69, though Judas was an individual, he was a representative of that collective seed of the serpent who throughout history have sought to strike the heel of the seed of the woman as described in Genesis 3 and onward. Now, David probably didn't fully understand the details of Judas' betrayal, and yet he did have a sense of God's greater purposes for the Israelite kingship, and he did have a sense about God's greater purposes for the battle between the Messiah and his foes that David himself was facing in his own life. David was facing foes not merely because people didn't like David, but because people didn't like the one whom David was merely a shadow. 
Psalm 109 is interesting too. Even though David calls down an imprecation on his enemy, a curse on his enemy, that's not at odds with Acts chapter 1 because what Judas received in his death was no less than that inbreaking of the curse that David called down. Judas' office would be taken by another. And so Peter directs the church to live in light of this reality. See, the New Testament writers all believed that the Old Testament wasn't just a, a bunch of random events strung together, but rather a book testifying to God's sovereign direction of history. A goal to redeem a people for himself in Christ and to display the ongoing progress of his redemptive plan through types, through shadows, through symbols, all of which would find their fulfillment in Jesus. It takes practice, friends. It takes work to begin to see those shadows and see how they point to Jesus, but they do. Preaching will stand at the center here at Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church. As a church, if you organize programs or strategic initiatives in South Holland, evaluate those based on whether they direct people toward the preaching of the gospel. When you get new ideas of, of how this church can impact South Holland, make sure the focus is on how the preaching of the gospel impacts communities. 1 verse 8, commission the church to be Christ's witnesses. And preaching is witness bearing par excellence. I noticed just this morning as I got up here this plaque on the pulpit. Some of you may have never seen this, but uh, some of you are probably long aware of this, You've probably heard this listed in numerous sermon illustrations, right? But up here, it's attached to it. I didn't try to steal it. I just tried to check. But it's attached, and it says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Famous quote. I believe it was Spurgeon. Somebody can correct me. Sir, we would see Jesus. Every week, Reverend Gephardt will stand in this pulpit and be reminded that what you need is not tips what you need is not chiefly advice. What you need is not just guidance. He can give you those things from Scripture. But what you need is to see Jesus. You need to see Christ the King reigning, but reigning for you. You need to see Christ the King advocating for you. Christ the King bringing your prayers into the presence of the Father so that you can go forth into your lives with confidence that He is well-pleased and knowing that he is at work in you, conforming you to the image of his son, killing off those sins that don't look fitting for those who follow Jesus, and growing in you those fruits of righteousness that serve others and bring glory to God. Our third point this morning is ordination in the church. Perhaps this is the most concrete thing we've been talking about and where we're going. And the thing is, not everything in Acts is reflective of ordinary church life throughout, and yet some things clearly are. We see preaching, sacraments, we see teaching, prayer, fellowship, togetherness, all kinds of things that go on today. And here we see ordination and installation. Matthias is numbered with the other apostles. Now, earlier we kind of wondered about the pragmatic ways we could think of why bother replacing Judas? Do we really need 12 people? Is it something to do with a parallelism in case they were each standing on one side of a teeter-totter? No, it has nothing to do with that. But rather, that number 12 is incredibly symbolic. It's incredibly important 
in Old Testament context. You see here, we see that Christ is establishing the church as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. Back in 1 verse 8, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do it now? And Jesus doesn't say no. But instead, he essentially says, wait. Indeed, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 shows the fulfillment of God's promise in Joel chapter 2, the Old Testament prophet Joel, where the pouring out of his spirit on all flesh, and he shows it in the context of God's jealousy for his land and pity for his people in the Old Testament. God had promised throughout the Old Testament prophets that the 12 tribes would be reunited, that these dispersed 12 tribes would be drawn back together, and the fullness of Israel, the fullness of God's people, his church, would be regathered. And in Luke 22, verses 29 and 30, Jesus assigned the 12 apostles a kingdom. He tells the apostles that they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we see that powerful symbol of the 12, now reconstituted post-Judas, expressing that very reality. God will not lose any of his own. The church is everything Israel was designed to be. But this ordination is chiefly for the purpose of witness. Notice how in his sermon in in verses 21 and 22, Peter says that Judas' replacement needs to come from one of the men who would accompany Jesus from the time of his baptism until his ascension. Why is that? Verse 22, that he might become with us a witness to Jesus' resurrection. This individual had to have walked with them because his task was to bear witness to Christ, to bear witness to the work of God in Christ in history. Ordination is a vital part of that witness mission of the church, even today, that was instituted in verse 8 when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Now that ordination is done with prayer, Seeking God's will. And of those 120 people that were around, two men were put forward. Joseph, Justice, goes by a couple different names, and Matthias. Looks like they were both qualified, right? Joseph and and Matthias had both been with Jesus, just as Peter had instructed. And yet, the problem with both of them being qualified, equally, how do they choose? And the answer is prayer. Verse 24, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. And then at this point, there is the casting of lots. This is an interesting question, interesting thing. We find in the rest of the New Testament, the church will not use lots anymore. Church ordinarily just uses discernment. They use God-given wisdom. They ask, is this person qualified or no? And yet here for the ordaining of an apostle, the church uses a unique method. Literally, I mentioned earlier how 1 verse 17 said that Judas had been given a lot in the ministry. It was a lot that fell to him at the direction of Christ himself in Matthew 10 verse 4 and in Luke 6 verse 16. And I submit to you that the reason they drew lots for this apostle was because of the lot that was given for that twelfth slot. That lot is once again entrusted to Christ. 
where it fell to Matthias, and the twelve were reconstituted. And what happens in the aftermath? This is actually kind of interesting. Do you notice there is no book of Matthias in the New Testament? There's no uh, book of Joseph. With Joseph, though he wasn't chosen, presumably he carried on with the early church. We have no indication that he got angry and tried to go find a new church because he didn't get put in, right? Presumably he stayed with them, worshiping with them, praying with them, fellowshipping with them, witnessing with them, serving with them. This is a reminder to us. We don't need to be chosen for specific roles in our churches or in our denominations to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand or to be agents in his mission. Presumably, Joseph carried on bringing glory to God and being a blessing to others. Other interesting thing is Matthias. Again, even though Matthias was chosen, we never hear from him again. Again, there's not a first letter of Matthias to the Corinthians. Second letter of Matthias to Timothy. And yet he presumably did able work as an apostle. And here, too, another reminder, even if you are chosen for specialized work, that doesn't necessarily make you suddenly the center of attention. But what we see and what is chief for us to note this morning is that the church is now ready for Pentecost, and the church is now ready for the mission that Pentecost will fuel. As we conclude this morning thinking about Acts chapter 1, thinking about what it is we're doing here. Let's keep this event of Acts 1 in mind as we install Reverend Gephardt for his ministry here in South Holland. Although Kerry is not an apostle, his apostolic ministry is one of witness-bearing, just like the apostles. He and the entire ministry of the church will bear witness to the risen, ascended Christ in worship, It's preaching, in prayer, in liturgy, in body life. And so let us pray for him in this task. And let us pray for this congregation as they participate in this mission as well. As we've sought God's will in calling Reverend Gephardt to this post, let us commit to seeking his will in everything as this church carries on from here. Chiefly, we do this when we understand and apply His Word through careful exegesis and careful interpretation. And we do this by prayer when time comes to install elders and deacons and future pastors for future church plants that God may be pleased to start from here. We will do that all by prayer. But I'd like to encourage you all this morning to go about this work confidently. Carrie, even if you never make it into the history books, even if you're like Matthias, God will bless your labors for Christ's sake. And even if this church does not turn into the front runner, even if this church doesn't make it on the cover of best church magazine in the world, God will use it to bear witness to the gospel of his son, however humbly he sees fit. Be confident in that, beloved. In Acts 1, the church has readied herself for mission through very churchly institutional actions and decisions. And this morning, through churchly institutional activities, we take up this post-Pentecost mission of witness and proclamation. God has reconciled us through the atoning death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has equipped us with His Spirit 
and has united us to him by faith alone. And so let us walk with joy and thanksgiving before him and engage this work of ministry with confident and grateful hearts. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we're in awe of your ability to use seemingly mundane things for such glorious, eternal purposes. And so, Lord, we entrust our lives before you this morning. We entrust this church to you, this congregation, and pray that you would use them in witness, witnessing to the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we lift up Reverend Gephardt to you and ask, O oh Lord, you would bless him and his family. May they find in you great satisfaction in challenging times of ministry. May they still find how sweet your gospel is to them. And may you bless his efforts of proclaiming Christ to this people. And now, Lord, be glorified in our worship. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.